Welcome to Network Collective. We're here again today to discuss the nitty gritty of data networking. Um, but before we dive into today's topic, I wanted to give a shout out to our friends over at Gestalt IT who started a new podcast that they're calling the On-Premise IT Roundtable. If you caught the play on words there, good for you. There, you'll find conversation about networking, storage, big data, and other IT topics in video and audio format. We will put a link in the show notes, so go check it out. Um, for those of you watching live, you can tweet Network Collective to participate in the conversation. And now we're going to get started. Um, today, we're going to do a deep dive into EIGRP with two storied routing experts, Russ White and Nick Russo. Nick, why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Hi, thanks, everyone. I'm, I'm really happy to be on the show. My name is Nick Russo. I'm a network consulting engineer at Cisco. Um, I've been working at networking for about seven years, and the first network I ever worked on was a, a large EIGRP network when I was deployed uh, in, to a combat deployment in Afghanistan. And since then, I've been working with it uh, pretty extensively over the years. And um, I've done two designs that I'll talk about in this show pretty recently that I think kind of highlight some of the capabilities of EIGRP as well as some of the challenges that we encountered uh, during those designs. Great. And Russ? Hey, Yvonne. How are you tonight? Great. <laughs> I'm Russ White, and um, let's see, I work for LinkedIn. I've been doing networking for about 30 years, and you can always find me at rule11.tech. Good deal. All right, let's kick things off. Um, let's start by just talking a little bit about a few of the best use cases for EIGRP. Most of us, uh, if we've worked on a, net, a network with Cisco Gear, have touched EIGRP, but today, what are some of the best use cases for that as our uh IGP. IGP. Yeah, GRP, IGRP. Sorry, I was having screen problems and I was trying to dual thread and it didn't work. Oh my goodness, bad memory. At least didn't say grip, You just had to do it, Phil. We are off the rails 30 seconds in. All right, guys, use cases for EIGRP. Um, Hub and spoke is a really good use case. I actually think data center fabrics are a good use case, although we never see them there. Um, Any kind of hub and spoke. And actually, I think any sort of campus network where you kind of want to fire and forget uh, you know, the problem with the IGRP is, is unlike the four-letter protocols, you know, I don't let my kids talk about four-letter protocols. Oh. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and you make fun of my jokes? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So um, the problem with the IGRP is I like to call it a cliff protocol. It's not, it does not, like OSPF and ISIS, when they degrade, they degrade gracefully and slowly over time. EIGRP, when it fails, it's gone. It's dead. Forget it. It'll never converge. So it's like it gets to this point where it just collapses. So um, I think that EIGRP is really good in these situations where you kind of want to fire and forget, but it's a limited scope, unless you're going to re- do real design. If you're going to do real design, EIGRP is a terrific protocol for just about any network, I think, unless you need link state for some reason. All right. So uh, you piqued my interest there. Under what conditions does EIGRP just go off a cliff? (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, Yvonne, Yvonne, bad memories, all sorts of bad <laughs> memories here. <laughs> so typically EIGRP runs into a couple of situations where it goes off a cliff. Now, the SIA rewrite solved a lot of the problems that I've encountered in the field over my years of working on it. But um, typically what used to happen a lot was when the, S when the query chain became longer than the neighbor adjacency hello timer or dead timer, it could cause all sorts of problems with SIA, and that would cause the network, the protocol basically to go off a cliff and never converge. Another thing that I've seen happen with the EDGRP is, let's say that you have your max paths set in your routing table to eight paths. And for whatever reason, you built a network with 32 alternate paths everywhere. Well, EDGRP being, being distance vector won't try to install all of them. In fact, it only advertises what's in its local table. So now you have this weird state where you have 32 available paths, which EIGRP can churn on, but you're only advertising eight of them. So you get into these churn situations where things just go nuts. And so quite often when I would work on a very large scale network with EIGRP that was collapsed, the first thing I would do is go around and find every network pair of paths or whatever in the network where I had more paths available than the max route set in the routing table and just start setting passive interface everywhere and cut the number of paths down. And that would usually stabilize EIGRP. Um, so those are the kind of things you can get into where it tends to fail. Beyond those types of things, though, EIGRP tends to be very rock solid. I mean, um, I've, I've seen it in hub and spoke networks with 1,200 to 1,500 remote sites and, and, and two hubs, and it just runs perfectly fine. The whole network can go down because of a link failure and come back up, and it's perfectly happy, particularly after the stub stuff was put in and the SIA rewrite stuff. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinarily stable protocol, by and large. I do. I mean, I'm, I'm just looking at or, or in listening to those those cases where it doesn't work. Those seem awfully point. You know, like yes. yeah. I mean, right. most networks right. aren't that. Most networks don't have more paths available than what you, know, you have what, max what maximum paths. Uh, yeah, in the yeah. IJRP set. So I, I mean, I can see that. I'm. I, I guess you would have seen more than most of us. So I'm glad you shared <laughs> those. But, uh, <laughs> The, the tack case that wouldn't end is what I'm hearing. Yeah, that's, that's kind of the take I got there, too. Yeah. Well, <laughs> global escalation more than tack, but yes, that's yeah. exactly right. When you get mailed on site because the network won't converge for six hours, then you suddenly start figuring out how to make it work again. <laughs> yeah, so I, I got, I got uh, something, something kind of to clarify. I think I think where Russ hit a lot of really great points with that, but just to maybe illustrate this for, for people who may not uh, may not have caught on to some of those immediate immediate use cases. So one of the first things Russ talked about was data center fabrics. And, you know, we think of a traditional data center, which, you know, uh, has, you know, big chassis switches at the core and aggregation with maybe uh, fabric extenders or topper rack switches and a bunch of layer two ether channel, multi-chassis uh, link aggregation. You know, that's kind of a traditional DC. That's not really what Russ is talking about in this case. What he's talking about is kind of a routed leaf spined style of fabric where top of rack switch is really a, a router with a whole bunch of uplinks to a whole bunch of spines. And that's kind of the case where you end up with 32 ECMP paths between all the different spines. Right. And that's the kind of the case where I'm just going to clarify that for people. And the reason, and, and now to touch on that, that max pads eight, just to give a little clarity um, for people who may not, um, you know, the, the, the distance vector nature of the RGP causes that problem because if I have eight routes in my routing table and there's 24 other paths I'm not using, if I lose one of those eight paths, you know, it's it's feasible that 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 the reachability to that route that I lost could be reachable through one of those other 24 neighbors. Because if I didn't install the route from them, 
then I'm going to query them. And that's part of the big issue is that you either turn off EIGRP neighbors or do some kind of filtering, which we can talk about a little later, or increase yeah. your max. Passive, in passive case, interfaces. Yeah, something yeah. something else. Yeah. So the, the, the real takeaway there is, you know, you're. By having your max pads too low, not, not only are you not using all your available pads, but you could actually be causing very serious convergence problems for the protocol. And those are some interesting pitfalls that would come if you had you know, a, a data center type fabric using EIGRP. And, and right. to Russ's first point about hubspoke networks, if you, if you think about the top of rack switch as it relates to the spines, it's kind of like a spoke with a whole bunch of hubs. And when you, when you look at the design that way and you apply the hubspoke principles to a data center fabric, you know, naturally, EIGRP stub tends to make sense on top of racks. Um, so a lot of those EIGRP design use cases that you would do in a hubspoke WAN make sense in those layer three routed data center fabrics as well. So yeah, why yeah. do you guys think that that's not necessarily a, um, a common uh, a use case for EIGRP? Because I, I don't know if it necessarily is. I don't see a ton of white papers where that's the routing protocol of choice uh, in a DC fabric. I actually don't know of any um, that are deployed today. Um, and I think the reason is, is because people tend to either want to do traffic engineering, so they want a link state protocol, or they just fall back to the old standard of BGP, which, you know, we can go back to the whole BGP discussion, right? And how we tend to overuse that protocol and we don't tend to use the other tools we have in a toolbox. And EIGRP to me is a perfectly valid tool in the toolbox for the right situation. And, uh, you know, we should just use it where it makes sense. That's interesting. So uh, I know, Nick, you said that there were um, a couple other use cases you wanted to talk about. Are there, are there other uh, scenarios or interesting EIGRP networks you've seen that you've got in mind? So I think I think the first words that Russ said, you know, when, when you say hub and spoke network, that, that covers a lot. And uh, the two specific designs I worked on were both hub and spoke style of network. So I'll talk about one that I think is particularly interesting. The second one's more of a traditional enterprise WAN use case. It's a little less fun, but I'll talk about the one that was kind of interesting. Is this was a case where um, we were deploying little uh, routers that had um, LTE uplinks back to LTE and Wi-Fi uplinks, so one of each basically back to a head end that was you know some short distance away. And what we needed to do, the, the only purpose of this network was to be a, a transit network for clients that plug into the LAN side of those little routers that had little switch modules. A client plugs in and that client opens up a remote access VPN to a concentrator somewhere behind the head end. So you think about the traffic flows in that environment. Well, we're really, it's really a true hub spoke network with absolutely zero requirement or it, it's, it, put it this way, no requirement for any kind of spoke to spoke traffic and spoke to spoke traffic would actually be uh, detrimental from a security and a routing perspective because if people are plugging in and they're pointing their remote access VPN client to a head end somewhere, or sorry, to a concentrator behind the head end, it didn't really make sense. And, you know, thinking about using OSPF in, in an environment like that, of course, you can do some tricks with static routing and, fil and LSA filtering, but ignoring those, um, EIGRP was a really appropriate uh, fit, in my opinion, because it, it happened to be a, a DMVPN interface. So effectively, a one multi-point interface at the hub with kind of point-to-point uh, -point style interfaces at the spokes. And it's a really natural fit because if you if you design it that way, you don't even have to put in any filters or anything because the, the routes from the spokes get advertised to the hub. The hub pushes his uh, head-end subnets down, but the spoke-to-spoke -spoke routes don't get reflected because Split Horizon's on by default. So literally, you can build this network, meet all the routing and security and filtering requirements with basically no config. And then EIGRP stub for good measure on the spokes. But for effectively no config, you can design a WAN that's, that's almost 100% solution. And I thought that was a really good use case. And it was EIGRP uh, v6, by the way, no, no v4 on this network. So it was an interesting use case to show 
kind of a, a protocol invented 20 years ago, extended for IPv6 that worked with, with almost no configuration and, and no effort. And I would, I would consider it kind of like Russ said, if you're going to do real design, um, you know, you can make the edge you know, sing and dance. But in this particular thing, the real design was, was quite a simple option, even at the end. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I've never, I've never heard someone using uh, the whole split horizon thing as a as a design feature, <laughs> right? I, under, <laughs> I, I, I understand, I understand why it's in place to protect ourselves from our, you know, or protect us from ourselves and not, you know, to avoid loops. But I've never, I've never heard that as like, hey, that's actually something that benefits us. The fact that it won't advertise us back out that link. Yeah, that's actually well, really cool. Yeah, in a secure environment like what Nick is talking about, where you're red to red and you're talking about IP, IPsec SAs, you clearly do not want spoke to spoke traffic because that traffic just gets black holed or tossed or it's or it's not bad. You don't want it there. So the split horizon really works in your favor in that case. It's pretty interesting. Um, and, you know, Nick, what you were saying about EDGRP being modified, one of the interesting things about EDGRP's design that people don't realize is that EDGRP is not a single protocol like OSPF is. It's actually a transport section that is built underneath a stand, the rest of the protocol. So in reality, the way EDGRP works is the entire transport code is a separate code base. And you can actually modify the transport code base to work on any transport you want to. And then you can actually run TLVs like you do with ISIS or address families like you do in BGP to run multiples on top of that transport. And it's weird because it was designed this way because any, if anybody remembers this, there was this thing called ISO eGrip and there was this thing called Novell Netware, right? And EIGRP was one of the first multi-protocol routing protocols that could support every address family in the book. If you wanted to run ISO and IP on the same network, EIGRP was your only choice. If you wanted to run IPX and IP on your on the same network, EIGRP was your only choice, or you had to run two routing protocols. So from the beginning, it was designed to do that kind of thing, which is pretty interesting, um, considering that it is a really old protocol that, you know, the environment at that time was such that it's it's very... Uh, flexible in those ways. That's really yeah. cool. I was going to say one of the, one of the, you can see that. So I was doing some uh, you know some reading and prepping for the show, and specifically on uh, like EIGRP, EIGRP over the top because it's just one of those topics that I didn't know a ton about. And I was reading about it and realized that you could have you know multiple potential overlays with different address families all with the same peering topology. And I'm like, whoa, this this looks way more like you know like like BGP than how I understand EIGRP. And uh, and so they, you know, you, you can still see hints of that even in the newer, yes, um, the, yeah. the, the the newer the newer features and and things that are able to be implemented in EIGRP uh, well, using that that ability that separation of of transport yeah. versus yeah. It's unfortunate we couldn't get Donnie on the show because it was kind of funny when Donnie decided to do um, communities instead of tags in EIGRP. He literally copied the BGP community code from Cisco IOS and put it as files in EIGRP. And compiled it in with hooks. It was literally the same code as the BGP code. code. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty funny. It's like, okay, well, you know. <laughs> neat, neat, neat. All right. Um, so um, let's talk about some of the unique challenges in deploying and operating an EIGRP network. I mean, in a lot of ways, when when I think of ERGP, E I G R P. I think. Um, I, I think it's, 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 <laughs> I know. I know. You don't want that. You really don't. Uh, I, 
I mean, I think in general, in most of our networks, EIGRP is pretty solid and straightforward. Like there's there's not a whole lot of magic involved with it, at least in my experience. So what are what are some things we should look out for um, if we're running EIGRP in our networks? Um, I can I can say one thing is uh, something that I've noticed in the environment where I work, um, specifically in, in military networks, what you tend to end up with is even in HubSpoke networks, um, where the vast majority of traffic flows kind of goes north-south. Sometimes what you'll have is, and I know this is probably very rare in uh, fixed enterprise-style networks, is that two spokes may be, these might be routers and trucks, and they might drive up to each other, and they might run a fiber cable between the two trucks. So now you have like a, a triangle-looking network. Well, if those routers are configured, for example, with EIGRP stub or some kind of outbound filter that only permits their local routes, when one of their WAN links fails, you know, you expected that, oh, are connected over this fiber. If, if you know, we now we back each other up. If my WAN fails, I should be able to route through you and vice versa. Well, that doesn't actually happen. Um, so when you when you're doing things, and you know, there's a there's a new uh, feature called uh, the stub site where you can work around that, but ignoring the ignoring the nitty gritty features of Cisco code releases, environments like that where I've seen issues is when people, you know, you design your network right. Um, people thought about where the stubs were going to go. Everything made sense. The network worked, but then you end up with cases like this that. People do these kind of sideways connections, and your route, your reachability through the WAN is broken now. And that's something yeah. that I experienced when I was when I was downrange. And you know, the, the immediate solution is all oh, turn off stub. And you know, that's fine. You can do that, and it works for a little while. And you know, if you if you do it as part of a procedure, you know, hey, the two of us plugged in, the two of us disable stub. That's that's a minimal impact versus disable it on all thousand nodes. Yep. Yeah. As a matter of fact, Nick, that does come up when you have. Um, L3 VPNs or something like that, or even um, SD-WAN, where you're actually doing a hub and spoke network, but you have a backdoor link of some type, right? Whatever that backdoor link might be, whether it's a cable connection or an MPLS or whatever the case might be, you have some backdoor link. Well, when you get a failure on your primary link, you just expect things to fail over. But if you've done your filtering wrong or you've done stubs, Things don't work the way you think they should, so it becomes an issue. Um, the other issue is what I talked about in the first place, which is having more paths available in the network than the max paths in your routing table. And that is that's a design issue that people don't understand. It's a link state protocol, or not? I'm sorry, it's a distance vector protocol, right? So distance vector protocols just have this property, and you've just got to know that's a problem. The other thing that that's the biggest design issue that you always hit in the IGRP is that. <clears throat> The query range is the primary design problem in EIGRP. That's you design the entire network around a query range. That's it. If you get query range down, the entire network works. If you don't get your query range down, it's going to blow up. That's just the way it is. And so a lot of people who are designing networks, they think about summarization. They think about all this other stuff. But what you really need to think about when you're doing an EIGRP network is how you manage the query range. And so if you manage the query range, you're happy. So those are kind of the gotchas to me is I see people who don't really think about query range. And then what they do is they set their SIA timers up. Don't ever set your SIA timers up. It's like if you can't design the network without setting your SIA timers up, you don't know how to design the network right. I'm sorry, but you got to stop doing that. Because all the SIA timer is, is it's how long you are willing to allow your network not to converge. That's a bad thing. Don't do that. It's set to an absolute maximum already. Design the network correctly and don't do that. So those are kind of my gotchas that I always <clears> deal with with the IGRP. Yeah, and then one, one minor point, um, I just want to clarify, I think Russ said something really important there is, you know, there's a lot of focus just in networking in general on, oh, we need to do our IP subnetting plan right, and we need to do our summarization right, or we need to do an OSPF, we need to do our area borders right, and that's all important, but 
the, the query range and the query scope, whatever you want to call it, is the main driver for eHRP. Now, even though stub, summarization, and filtering are all common tools used, they, you know, it, it's just a focus. It's, it's what, what problem are you trying to solve? You know, you can focus on putting summaries in the network, but where are the summaries going and where, where are the slow links where queries need to be stopped? Because if you just look at your, if you just draw your network and you just pick, okay, well, every router that's at the very edge, I'm going to put stub on that. Don't do that because there might be, there might actually be routers that are maybe one hop away from the edge of the network where stub makes sense. Here's a perfect example. Suppose you have a small branch site over a WAN with 2000 spokes. And that branch, you know, you got a router that's terminating your IPsec tunnel, but then beyond that, south of it, you have a layer three switch that's running the edge RP. Do you really want to make that switch a stub? Maybe it makes sense to make the router a stub. That way the router doesn't get queried from the hub over the WAN because who yep. cares if you query the switch? It's on the LAN. So in that case, you would might be want to do some leaking of the routes that are connected to that layer three switch. But in that case, we didn't put stub at the very end of the routed network. We put it one hop above because again, what problem are we trying to solve? We're trying to keep queries off the WAN so that we can converge the network. That's what's yep. going to bound the query domain. So just yep. things like that to keep in mind is don't don't just be like, oh, I'm going to put it everywhere where I think it makes sense. And this is where the, the document told me to summarize. I think, like Russ said, if you're going to do proper design, make sure that you consider what your query scope is and then use the tools to solve that problem. Don't just deploy the tools because you're supposed to. As, as a matter of fact, before we had stubs, one of the common things we did with Hub and Spoke Networks was we would actually throw um, four routers as the hub routers. And we would actually back in so we actually have two layers of hub routers just so we could block the queries from going across the hub and spoke network. So it was a hardware way of solving what stub actually solves today. Interesting. Is, yeah. Yeah. I've actually, I've seen some funny behavior as well. If you don't, if you, if you don't summarize carefully, especially with active, right? Because I mean, active is all about the prefix. And so, you know, if I lose this prefix and I start searching for it. Um, so, I mean, I saw some, some really funny behavior um, where you, you, you know, you have more specific prefixes coming out of one link than another, and you lose that link. And all of a sudden, even though you have a backup prefix, you have something that's less specific, you still go active yep. for those oh, for yes. those for those prefixes yes. that aren't there. And so, uh, more specific routes is something that we would use. You know, maybe in BGP that you know, uh, as as a backup mechanism, isn't as clean in EIGRP uh, be, because of that whole active query mechanism that goes there. And and I saw some uh, some really quite interesting behavior with that. Yeah, yeah. So, right. So again, think about your query range on a per prefix basis and think about where you filter and aggregate and use stubs and other things so that you block, you know, you're not just assuming that things are going to work right. You really have to think about the failure modes and try to understand what those failure modes look like. Um, so it is, in some ways, it's harder to design any EDGRP network than it is OSPF or ISIS because of that. In some ways, it's easier. In some ways, it's massively easier. But in some ways, it's harder. It's a different well, I see, mindset. I see OSPF as something where you need to tweak the knobs more. I see EIGRP as the more knobs you tweak, the harder it gets. Yeah. Right? And so, uh, yeah. and so, the the more you're trying to design an EIGRP network, the more complicated it becomes. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying I'm not saying that to dissuade you from designing it because you should, but it just one of those things to keep in mind that as you add summarization, as you as the network becomes larger, as you add stub, like it adds complexity that doesn't exist in the default deployment because the default exactly. deployment for smaller for smaller networks is beautiful it's one of the easiest things to implement in the world you just like you said just set it and go yeah but as as the network grows or special conditions are met uh all of a sudden there's there's more design where i feel like you have that design requirement up front with some other protocols right yeah you know phil's been very quiet 
Well, I was actually going to mention that, uh, uh, you know, going back to Nick's point, it's not necessarily even the size, although I do agree with you, Jordan, but uh, a, a 1500 site DMVPN, you can still have a pretty simple EIGRP configuration over the top of that. So it's, it, to me, it's definitely the use case. And that's, and that's a network that I worked on. It was 15, 1800 sites, uh, you know, with a dual hub. And uh, when I started at that place, I expected to see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of configuration and you log into a head end router or you have a, a, one of the larger spokes and it was very surprisingly simple. At least the, at least the router configuration part, you know, some of the other things were more complex. Uh, and that was really surprising to me. So I think it's you know, a lot of the use case, um, it, specifically the one that Nick brought up, uh, you know, a large DMVPN, <clears throat> even in a dual hub DMVPN, um, a really straightforward EIGRB configuration can be just fine. So. Yeah, there's a. I think I think one of the things that makes the OGRP a little tricky, and I, I think I agree with what the Jordan and Russ were saying, and I'll, I'll paint kind of a comparison to OSPF. You know, we think about at a high level what what is an area boundary or area border router. You know, if I if I do a summary there in both directions, it's pretty straightforward to say that you know uh, traffic is. Um, I mean, I may realize it's not queries and things like in, in OSPF, but suffice it to say that if you put a summary boundary in OSPF somewhere, you know that that summary boundary is kind of hard. It's right there. But with the OGRP, it's a little more a little more sneaky. So let me try to paint a picture for you. So suppose you had four routers in series, you know, R1, R2, R3, R4. Just kind of picture that. And suppose that this first router has like four LANs connected to it. So four user subnets, four, you know, slash 26s, they aggregate into a slash 24. So R1 takes these four routes, and every EOGRP is enabled everywhere. So R1 advertises these four routes to R2. So R2's got all four of these routes in his routing table. Great. Suppose that R2 configures a summary towards R3. Okay, so R2 has four slash 26s in this table. He goes on his port to R3, says do a summary for a slash 24. He ports that off to R3. Okay, so we, we move over to R3. We do swipe your route. We look at what he has. He's only got that slash 24. Um, and then he sends that on to four. Okay, so we should have reachability in this scenario. The question becomes, suppose I go on R1 and I shut down one of those slash 26s. How far does the query go? And this is the question I think I think a, a number of people would probably not understand this is when one loses that, he has to query R2. Because, you know, he was learning the route from connected. It was his local route. And he says, well, I lost it. Hey, R2, do you have another path to it? R2 is, is the person doing the summarization. So some people might think that R2, R2 is a summary boundary. He's just going to immediately reply to R1 and say, no, I don't have another path. And the query domain is bounded. That's false. What R2 does is he has to query R3 because remember, R2 has all the routes. R2 has all four of the routes. He, he configured the summary. The query goes one, what I'm really trying to get at here is the query goes one hop past where the summary or the filter is configured. Yep. So mm -hmm. the, the, the query will go to R3. R3 is like, well, I never had that route. No. So R4 is the only router in this network that doesn't get queried. So the reason that's important though is again, what if that link between two, what if, you know, the link between one and two and the link between one and, or three and four, if those were high speed gigabit links, but that link in the middle was a slow WAN link, it's probably not a good design. Maybe doing the summary at R1 would have been the superior option. So yeah. you have to, that's, that's kind of goes back to what Russ is saying. You understanding the nuances of the technology and how the query scope works. Like with OSPF, it's easy. The boundary's right here. It's kind of straightforward. You can look at it and understand it. But with the EIGRP, it's sneaky. You got to understand. What routers have which routes? Where do the summaries and filters occur? And how far does the query go? Because that's going to become, again, kind of to Jordan's point, when you're doing this level of EGRP design, you need to be really uh, think through 
um, those yep. locations where you do the aggregation and the filtering because the query domain is going to go one step beyond that. And you need to keep in mind, if that next step is an extremely slow link, then that might not be a good design option. And this, by the way, is a really good example to me of thinking through design from understanding the theory of how the protocol works rather than just how you configure it. I think this is really, really the example of that type of problem because, yeah, EIGRP queries end where the information is no longer available, not where the aggregation stops. It's where the information is no longer available. And that's what you have to think about. So, you know, you have to understand that's how EIGRP works when you're designing the network. You just can't go, well, I'm configuring the summary here. Therefore, the information is no longer available. Therefore, I've solved the problem. No, you really can't. You've got to really think about how this protocol works. I'm glad. I'm really glad you guys brought that up because I'm just I'm, I'm thinking about networks I've worked in and how many times the summary happens before an international link, <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm going to summarize across this international link, but the query goes across the international link anyway because that's it's exactly one step right. beyond. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. And so that's why when you, before we had stubs, we would throw the four routers in as hubs. We put a two deep hub situation in, so the query would stop at the at the router above the hub router rather than passing to the hub router and going beyond the hub router. Yeah, so that's so that's a tip. I mean, that was what we used to do before we had stubs. Um, then, we used to play all sorts of tricks like that. Yeah, and then ex extending that same concept, like Jordan, your, your example of that international link, you know, if the, the concept of, of hierarchical summarization is probably easily understood by all of us uh, talking here, but the idea there would, would be almost the same thing that Russ is saying is before the, before the routes even get to that international uh, ASBR in your network, it's, you know, there's a, there's a, I don't say an assumption, but a design choice to have done uh, lower level aggregates before it gets to that point. So those individual lands failing or remote sites failing would have been mm -hmm. masked by the international router in the first place. So the, the hierarchical aggregation, um, and again, kind of the, the big misnomer of aggregation is that it keeps your routing table small. That's technically true, but it's typically not the driver. The driver, again, like Russ said, and it's worth re repeating multiple times, is scoping the query domain. And yeah. aggregation is a great tool to do that. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, definitely, yeah. Nick, I think you, uh, you we're going to see <clears throat> some some GNS three and and viral fired up <laughs> tonight. <laughs> based on that, as you are going through router one and router two, I'm like, oh man, I wish I had a pen and paper. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I hope to, that's I, what happened. I tried to draw the simplest possible example I could to demonstrate <laughs> yeah. it, and that was the, that was the simplest I could come up with in, in two minutes. No, no, that's good. I have a feeling. I have, I have a feeling though we're going to see a lot of folks, or, or may I hope I hope maybe in the comments here yeah. there's some folks labbing that up and, and, and playing with it. So. Yeah, and, and while we're on that topic, there's one more, and this is a question I, I posed it a few times. In, uh, in some study groups that I'm part of, and, and Russ has probably read through it a few times. Um, here, it's kind of another, it's another thing that I'm going to talk through, and, and you're probably, you know, if you're just listening, you may not be able to visualize it really well, but it's kind of, uh, this is, you know, I, I think by now most people kind of understand that the edge RP stub, so I guess, I guess it's worth backing up for a second. Let me just take a quick break to the side, and for people who don't know what the edge RP stub is, I'll give you the 15-second version. When you configure an edge RP router as a stub, kind of two critical things happen. Number one, that router can't be used as transit because it only advertises it's connected in summary routes. Generally, you can adjust that. but So it's not a transit node, so it makes sense for a spoke or a top of rack switch in a data center fabric, something like that. And the other thing is you can never query a, a stub router. So a, a, you know, a router cannot be queried ever. Um, so that information, the, the presence of being a stub is is present in the EHRP exchange with a neighbor. So if I'm a hub, I was like, yeah, these 10,000 people, they cannot be queried. I will never send them a query. 
Um, so that's kind of what a stub does. That's one way to bound the, the query domain. So I want to just kind of paint kind of an academic, a theoretical scenario because, you know, in real life, this network would be better designed. But we've talked a lot about using the IGRP stub filter to bound the query domain. And we talked to you about using summarization and filtering to do the same. And the reason that it's worth talking about this for a good chunk of the show is because it, it is literally the number one driver for eIGRP, and that's probably worth uh, discussing. So I just want to paint, again, a quick scenario here. Suppose you have a single hub and three spokes, such as the hub spoke network, like your crow spoke kind of network. Um, you are trying to, uh, let's just assume you have some kind of instability and some issues with queries. You know, I don't give you a whole lot of information. I'm a junior engineer, and I tell you that. You're given the choice to either issue a summary route, like a default, from the hub. That's option one. And option two is configure eIGRP stub on the spokes, but you can't do both. So we all acknowledge that doing both is the, is the, probably the best answer, but you can't do both. You can only do one. And the reason I pose this question is because sometimes you'll get people who just blurt, blurt out one of the answers, whichever one they like more, and that's usually not the way to go about it. And I think it's worth just talking through kind of the logic behind this. So let's suppose we choose option one and we send down this aggregate address from the hub. That means that if I'm a spoke, all the, all the routes that the other spokes have are all covered by that summary. So in that case, um, you know, when if, a, if, a, if another spokes fails, so for example, if I'm on spoke one and spoke two fails, it goes off network completely. I will not, if I'm spoke one, I will never know it. I won't know it failed, um, which, which is going to have some impact on the query. And specifically, um, if I'm thinking about this right, the spoke will never, in that case, the spoke will never query the hub because he's not aware of a change in the network. So imagine I had a thousand spokes and spoke 1000 fails. Those first 999 won't query the hub because to them, nothing changed. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Now, but what does happen, the hub queries all the spokes because the hub is aware of the change and none of the spokes are configured as stubs. So now the, 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 the spokes get queried by the hub, but not vice versa. Okay. So that's one solution. You probably see where this is going. If we do the other solution and we configure the spokes as stubs, the stubs or the spokes never get queried by the hub, but the opposite is true. The spokes will cure. Uh, sorry, that this I'm not getting confused here. I'm talking too fast. <laughs> the if, hub will if never the, query if the spokes. spokes are stubs. <laughs> the hub will not query them, but the spokes will query the hub when one of the remote spokes fails. So basically, right. I'm asking the question: What direction? What what pick your poison? What direction do you want the queries to flow in? And it's less about getting the answer right because there isn't a right answer. It's more about thinking through kind of what I just said. And I think a lot of people kind of make the mistake of, oh, you had your stub. That's what you're supposed to do. Well, think, you know, take a take a second, breathe. And, and think through that because yeah. when we talk about summarization and stub together, that's where you get the power. But when you're only forced to choose one, and in some networks that might be the case, if you're using uh, like a maybe a standardized version, somebody wrote EIGRP and Quagga or whatever, and it doesn't support stub, well, then maybe you're only stuck with one choice and you have to choose one, but you should be aware of the impact on your network and what tool is right for the job. And then, again, in that particular case, both tools make sense. But I just wanted to pose that as a kind of a theoretical discussion scenario because I think it highlights the thought process through how does the EIGRP network converge when there's a failure and how do the different tools work in a common HubSpoke network. Yeah, I think it's important in all routing protocols to think through the failure modes. We often think through how it's going to work, but we don't think about how it's going to fail. Like, oh, I build this network with a ring of six routers, and I don't really think about how OSPF or ISIS or EIGRP converges on that topology. So I just go off and I build this thing, and I just assume it's going to work. Good for you, but think through the failure modes. It's really important to think about what happens when things fail. And this is true of all routing protocols. But Nick, I did want to interject one thing. It's not Quagga. 
don't 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 quack it. Oh no! <laughs> no! I, I had to pick. I had to pick something. I, uh, I know. No, no, no. If you, it, it's free, free range routing. routing free if you range have to routing. pick one. Yeah. Yes, if you have to pick one, free range routing, because there is actually an anti-RP implementation in free range routing that is an open source implementation. It's not perfect yet. We're still working on it, but there is an open source implementation in in free range routing. But I think Russ's point is well taken about thinking through failure modes because none of us have been on the phone at 3 a.m. because our routing protocol is working normally, right? And so... (laughs) (laughs) Really? Really? That's never happened to you, Yvonne? I mean, I know. You know why? You said that. I might actually welcome one time that call, (laughs) right? Like, like, I just wanted to call you and tell you that the network is operating perfectly. Thank you. (laughs) But it's 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 never good to think through those failure modes at the first time for the first time at 3 a.m. Right. And so understanding how it's going to fail and what to expect when it fails is uh, is a hugely important thought exercise for us as network engineers. So, if you have the luxury of a grand field design and deployment. No, I think well, general, you can I still do general, that. Probably. I mean, you can still look at the environment and say, what happens if this link fails? What happens if this route goes away? I mean, you may not be able to do much about it or or but but at least to, to have that in your head, because at 3 a.m., I just it doesn't well, work. Well, I mean, well. not even 3 a.m., Yvonne. I mean, when I was on S Global Escalation and I would be dropped into a network and I was given a network diagram that was, you know, 15, 20 pages printed out or larger or whatever it was, one of the things I did to try to understand the network better was to think through the failure modes. Not even this particular failure that I'm working on. Just say to myself, all right, if I want to understand how this routing protocol works in this network, I need to think about what that failure would do to the, how it would converge about this failure, because that helps me think through where they've done aggregation, like what Nick is talking about, right? It helps me think through where they've done aggregation, where they've split up their failure domains and makes me double check, like, do I really understand where those failure domains exist and where they don't? Or am I just going, oh, that's just an ABR or, oh, that's just an aggregation. So boom, I know where it is. Not necessarily. There, there are places where you split a failure domain, but there's a back door. Oh, so you look at the aggregation, you're like, oh, it's aggregated, so therefore there's two different failure domains. Well, not necessarily. There could be another link. Again, going back to Nick's example of the two trucks pull up next to each other and connect a fiber cable between them. Now my failure domain is different than what it used to be. And unless I'm thinking about that in terms of failure domain, and th- I'm not going to see that unless I really think through how this network converges. And I think that's re- where it's really helpful to do that. So anyway, that's just kind of my, that's one of my, one of my escalation engineer tricks was I always went through and I, when I would sit down with it, with a, with an IT team that was working on a network that was failing or was trying to figure out how to design something was always, all right, what happens if I take that link right there out? Tell me how the network converges. And when you do that about 10 times, all of a sudden the light bulbs start going on in people's eyes and they're like, now I see how this network really works. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's very helpful. So that's kind of my take on that, that entire all right. Um, no, go ahead. Oh, no. So, it's just, you know, another another point, and Russ and I have actually talked about this uh, quite a bit um, in the context of fast reroute and fast restoration. You know, EHRP is pretty well known for the, the idea of a feasible successor, so effectively a fast backup path. You know, it kind of it made that cool before the other protocols made it cool. And that was, you know, kind of, uh, I, I wouldn't call it quite as big of a, 
a design <laughs> driver as the uh, bounding the query domain, but it's probably one of the bigger ones. Um, but the interesting thing about it, that's probably, it's, it's probably not worth talking about the, the math and the formulas on the show, but the interesting thing about that and, and Russ, uh, I actually argued with Russ six months ago because I didn't understand it. So I'm going to, I'm going to explain it the way he explained it. He can back that. That's wrong. Cause, it, it oh, made no. it, cause my thing was I, I was actually trying to develop a way that the edge would be able to use uh, backup paths that where the uh, feasible distance and the advertised distance were the same rather than uh, strictly less than, you know, and, and my Russ has said, well, that could cause micro loops. And I just didn't believe how that was possible. And he painted a really easy scenario that kind of explained it. And again, I realize I'm drawing diagrams with my mouth right now, so it's a little hard to follow, but the, the general wave your idea hands. wave your hands. Yeah, <laughs> the general idea is, you know, yeah, if you, you know, if you have kind of like a, you know, suppose you have like an isosceles triangle where router one and router two have a really, really fast link, low cost between them. And then they both have, you know, maybe WAN links out to R3 that's kind of far away. So if you want to draw it to scale, it'd be like kind of a isosceles triangle that way. Um, you know, if one of those WAN links fail, you know, if you think about, you know, if R1 sending traffic to R3, but the link between them fails, I feel like well, R1 could just route through R2 and have it be a fast backup path. Um, you know, and when you think about cases like that, but the problem is that doesn't work because what if R3, the whole router fails? Like the whole, if the whole router goes down, then R1 and R2 are both using each other for backups. You have a microloop. So EHRP was specifically designed and said, we acknowledge that if the feasible distance my feasible distance, my neighbor's advertised distance are the same, and I use that for a backup path. It will work in some scenarios, but in others, it causes micro loops. So if I understand it correctly, Russ, the decision was we want EHRP to be different from the link state protocols, and we want it to guarantee that there will never be micro loops during a convergence event with EHRP based on uh, the way the feasible the feasibility it's, condition was written. Yeah, it's actually the opposite. It's actually EHRP was designed to never micro loop. It was consciously, the decision was made consciously that the way the feasible successor process would work is that it's a negative test. You know for a fact that no matter what happens in the network, if it's a feasible successor, it will never loop. Never, ever, ever. Which cuts out possible alternate paths that may also be micro loops. That's why it's, it's a more conservative test than an LFA. When LFAs were being designed in link state protocols, it was much later. Remember, EHRP was designed in the world of X25. Right. Microloops are fatal in X25. I mean, you can take out a 64K link with a microloop in a heartbeat in a hub and spoke network with dual home hubs and you know stubs and whatever. So it was intentionally designed not to ever microloop. When link state protocols started thinking about how to do LFAs, the design concept was more about, well, we're in high speed networks. Microloops are okay for a tenth of a second, you know, a few milliseconds or whatever the case might be. So they actually designed them to be more forgiving because they wanted a broader set of alternate links or paths with the assumption that microloops were going to happen. And by the way, the interesting thing about this is link state protocols always microloop in a large ring anyway. So it wasn't like when, when, when we were doing LFAs in link state, it wasn't like, oh, this is radically different. Now there's going to be microloops and there never were. Because there always were microloops in link state protocols. So it was just yet another instance of the same thing. So yeah, but the design, you're right, Nick, the design was intentional on both sides to choose a different way of doing things. I was just saying EHRP's design came before link state design. So, you know, and, and it's because of the link types. It's because of the environment EIGRP grew up in, basically. That that makes sense. <laughs> I just have two relevant, uh, what I believe relevant comments. First is, Nick, you, you draw some of the best mental 
<laughs> network diagrams I've it's ever really heard. Really good. And, and and second and second and I I never thought about it this way. EIGRP with feasible successor is the hipster router protocol. It was cool before everything else was cool. I just had to throw that in there. Okay. We need to get it a latte and some black glasses. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Some, avocado, some skinny jeans. Yeah. Avocado toast. There, are, <laughs> there we go. There are a lot of DevOps folks out there that would strongly disagree with it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the. Uh, you know, the, the interesting thing about it is that even though EIGRP had the concept of a feasible successor and backup paths and all that, it's it's limited, though, because if you look at, and again, I'm not going to quote the RFCs and the math and the different inequalities that go into LFAs, and Russ and I like to geek out on this on, on direct messages. That's but why we're like, here. For, for the rest of the world, yeah. <laughs> See, I don't have that memory. I'm not going to lie. I don't have it memorized. <laughs> oh, it's BS. Thank you for making me not feel yeah, yeah. inferior. But, uh, <laughs> I used to know Nick, it. But Nick, anyway. would, you, would you like me to go down? No, never mind. Oh, <laughs> no, Russ. Come on now. But long, long story short, it, the thing about um, – the, the most forgiving LFA in OSPF is one that can, you know, can guarantee link protection, not necessarily node protection, but what it does, it relies on you knowing your neighbor's local cost. And EIGRP can never do that. I mean, I, don't, I say never, and of course you can extend the protocol, but the point is that EIGRP is aware of its local cost and the routes from the neighbor, but you don't know your neighbor's local distance, his local cost. You'll never know that in a, in a link, or in a, sorry, in a distance vector protocol. So because I don't know his cost, I don't know how, I don't necessarily know if he's going to route through me or not. I don't have his picture. That's of exactly network. right. So, yeah. so ERGP's LFAs, even though there's like a new little switch on the command line that says ERGP fast reroute, all that does is take the route from the routing table and write it to TCAM faster. It doesn't actually change the process. It doesn't actually change the way LFAs are built like it does in OSPF for IS to IS. So just, you know, kind of keep that in mind is EIGRP fast reroute is not really a new thing. It just uses feasible successors in a way that converges, you know, milliseconds faster on chassis boxes kind of thing. But EIGRP is, is kind of, you know, we kind of came to that natural conclusion with feasible successors based on the design of don't micro loop. Um, right. While the, the other protocols have kind of more knobs that you can turn for more customized, I don't say customized, but more a better backup coverage, better LFA coverage, both in rings and general topologies. So that's yeah. not something you're generally going to get with the EIGRP. Right. Yeah, so long, so long as you're willing to, so long as you're willing to live with the micro loops, right? Your your basic choice is throw the traffic on the floor or micro loop. That, those are the only two choices you have. EIGRP made one choice. Link state protocols made another. It's just the way it is. Yeah, and I, I dare say, you know, if we're if we're talking, and this is this is kind of a, a hard claim to make because networks tend to be more general purpose. But if we're talking about applications and business requirements, and you have, let's just say, magically, you had a network that had a lot of voice traffic and packet loss was an issue, and the voice flows were small and the links were fat, then it then you know micro loops might not be a problem. So OSPF right. and IS to IS without LFAs might be an appropriate option because having that packet loop a little bit on a link and have its DTL recommended by 40 doesn't really matter because that packet's still going to make the destination and the voice quality is not really going to be measurably hindered versus dropping the traffic could be a, a more serious issue. You know, maybe stock market stuff, you know, I'm kind of just making this up as I go, but the applications might have some impact on the routing protocol in that case when you're talking about things like, do I micro loop it or do I not? If you're in the data center with extremely heavy data flows and relatively shallow buffers on giant routers and switches and stuff in a data center fabric and micro loops are a bad thing, you'd either want to go something like a link state protocol with ordered FIB or LFAs or EHRP. Yeah. So just some things to kind of keep in mind or, how application or BGP, or BGP. Or BGP. This is actually yeah. this is actually one reason a lot of people use BGP in data center fabrics because it doesn't micro loop either. And so it's actually seen as a positive, a net positive for BGP that it doesn't it doesn't do this. It has other issues though, but yeah. <laughs> All right. So we've we've 
talked about the details of EIGRP, but let's talk about its future. Um, what what do we think is going to become of EIGRP? We know it's a it's a mostly Cisco proprietary protocol. They they've released uh, stub features uh, to the ITF, but what what do we think is the long term view uh, for EIGRP? I know I've I've heard vendors. Uh, other vendors, non-Cisco vendors, say, you know, you just need to get off EIGRP because nobody else does that and the world's moving a different direction. Um, so, so what, would, what are your thoughts on that? I would differentiate between EIGRP and dual. So that may sound weird, but one of the problems we have in the modern routing world is we tend to think when we say EIGRP is dead, we tend to say, oh, because EIGRP is dead, distance vector is dead and i would disagree with that i think distance vector itself has a has a very bright future in many ways um edgrp itself uh, there are open source um, implementations out there now that are being worked on i know of people who are starting to seriously consider it in certain environments particularly mobile mobility type environments and um, there has been some talk in the uh, data center fabrics of doing something like edgrp um, in the dual world, in the larger world of diffusing update algorithm, uh, there is an actually new protocol out there called Babel, uh, which I'm a co-chair of the working group in the IETF for that. And it is a, a diffusing up, update algorithm type of protocol, which has a lot of really neat features in it. It doesn't have everything. It's kind of overlaps with the EDGRP. There are things that, that are better than the EDGRP and things that are worse than the EDGRP in Babel. So... Overall, I still think that it's a viable technology. I think we've gone through this hard pendulum swing to link state, and eventually, as networks always do, we tend to pendulum swing back and forth. And I think we'll start seeing action on the EDGRP front at some point in in the future. Yeah, and that's a good kind point. I, th I think it's I think it's worth. I'm going to try to summarize what diffusing update algorithm means in about 30 seconds, and see <laughs> Russ can probably correct me, but I'll try to keep it quick. So, thank you. He's our interpreter. <laughs> the, reason, yeah, the reason it's called that is because the word diffusing is really what we're trying to do is you think about EHRP and I go up on a router and I look at an EHRP topology table. The only state in that router is the state for myself and my directly connected neighbors. I don't know about anyone else's state. It's not like link state where I have this massive area or flooding domain like IS or OSPF where I have a lot of state. The only state I have is for my neighbors. So the state gets diffused through the network at every hop. I'm only sending pieces of the information like the route, basically the route and the, and the cost to reach it. That cost is a composite of multiple different things, as we know, bandwidth, delay, load, reliability, et cetera. But the, the idea behind the diffusing update is that I only have state for my peers, not the whole network. So that my scalability of my table is ignoring the size of my routing table and the memory to retain it. The stage of my EHRP state is limited to a very small number, typically single digits, maybe double digits of EHRP neighbors. So that's one of the scaling aspects of EHRP that's just built into the way it works is that you can have a, a multi, tens of thousands of node in one EHRP autonomous system. Generally, in OSPF or ISDIS, you can't really do that within a single flooding domain. But with EHRP, you could give in, again, intelligent query domain scoping and all the other design considerations that we've kind of talked through. So that's what diffusing yeah. update means. So and, did I get that also, right, Russ? Yeah, but you not only diffuse the, the state, and this goes back to the state optimization surface, doesn't it, Nick? Anyway, you not only diffuse the state, but you also diffuse the convergence process, right? That's what the query is doing. It's actually diffusing the, the, the update process. In link state, every individual router makes its own decision. In dual, in a dual-based network like EIGRP or Babel, you're actually sharing the work of 
of converging on new paths among all the routers in the in the area around that failure or that new route so it actually diffuses the work across multiple cpus so it, it the diffusing kind of plays in multiple ways so i would say that again you know that whole concept is actually still a very valid concept we don't use it a lot but it's still a very valid concept it, you, it gives you a different set of trade-offs than link state does and i think that it's important for in the networking world to never let go of an idea like that and to find places to use it in the future because as i said pendulum swing eventually it'll come back you know babel is very heavily used in, in mobile ad hoc networks and home rule networks. 11 it's rule 11 russ yes i know it is rule 11 <laughs> there you go my favorite rc 1925 rule <laughs> throwing a uh, uh... Significantly less technical uh, uh, perspective here. Uh, I did a project recently where we were required to use OSPF instead as a result of our SD-WAN solution and as a result of the possibility that we wouldn't be using Cisco in certain parts of our network, specifically the WAN in other areas, but obviously the S uh, our, our SD-WAN. Um, and, and that in and of itself was the driver to not choose EIGRP, if that makes any sense, and I'm sure it does. No, I, understand. I can, yeah, I can understand and appreciate that. I think, I think the only, the only thing I would offer in that case is asking the golden question is what's the problem you're trying to solve. And if you have, let's say you had a, a WAN that was non Cisco, but you had Cisco equipment and other places in the network, it could be very tenable to just run different protocols and have some kind of interworking solution between them, like redistribution or, or BGP between them. Or, you mm -hmm. know, those are options that I think a lot of people kind of, kind of turn their kind of cold shoulder those ideas and say, well, we just want to have one protocol everywhere. And if we have to do OSPF areas, that's fine. But I would also just um, just uh, encourage everyone to kind of think through what's the right tool to solve this problem. And if you're talking about a relatively small HubSpoke WAN that OSPF can scale over, it's not that much of a problem. Um, you know, the, the broad brush in general, kind of like Russ talks about these massive pendulum swings between ideologies, that's generally not the best way to go. And I'm, I'm certainly not suggesting that was your idea, but just as a general comment, yeah. Um, you know, the broad brush approach to one tool for everything is usually not uh, the right answer. So I would say deploy the right protocol that makes sense in parts of your network, you know, acknowledging that redistribution can be kind of a nightmare sometimes, but used intelligently and especially with uh, intelligent summarization and, and preventing loops and things like that, it can be a pretty powerful tool. And, and oftentimes, especially when you're working with things like, uh, you know, OSPF, breaking up the flooding boundaries with external routes, you know, if you redistribute OSPF and EIGRP, that guess what, you broke the query boundary for EIGRP in doing that. So there are some there are some advantages there to consider individually. How did I help OSPF and EIGRP? And overall, how did I help the, the business case or the business uh, drivers for the network by deploying the right protocols in the right spots? Mm -hmm. so, so the other thing is, Phil, you know, you can go back to that vendor and say there is an open source implementation you can back into, you know. Yeah, There's right. no reason for you <laughs> not, right. not to consider using EIGRP in the future. No, seriously, I do think <laughs> that as network engineers, for some reason, and I don't understand this, Maybe it's maybe it's just my personality that I'm not this way, but we tend to have this feeling that we can't push back on vendors and we can't push back on business people that we're just not, you know, we just have to take what's given to us and make it work. And I am so against that. To me, if a vendor comes to me with a solution and I think the vendor solution is horrible, or if I work for a vendor and a customer says to me, I'm going to do this, even as a vendor, I'm going to say, no, that's a bad idea. Let me try, you know, we need to work together to make the solutions better. We don't need to say, oh, well, my manager told me to do this. Yeah, great. But 
as an engineer, I need to have enough confidence and I need not just on the engineering side, but on the business side to be able to push back and say, no, it's not a good idea. I'm sorry. And, and trust me, I've gotten in trouble for this. So I, I understand where it comes from. But but I do think that seriously, if I was in that position, I would go back to the vendor and say, all right, for this deployment, I understand why I need to do OSPF. And I know that you're not going to deploy EIGRP right now. But I'm going to tell you as an engineer, there is an open source implementation of EIGRP. You really should look at this for these large scale hub and spoke networks. And you should really be giving your customers other options. So, you know, that's just my kind of take on that. That that R R That's Russ's uh, hoorah speech to tell us all to fight the good fight. That's right. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> all right, guys, we, um, we are going on an hour here, and it has been a really great conversation. Um, I may have to get out my GNS3 lab here in a bit and... <laughs> Uh, do my R R one R two R three R four um, that that uh, Nick demonstrated for us. Um, so real quick, um, Jordan, why don't you tell people where they can find you on the web? Sure, uh, sure. I'm at BC Jordan on Twitter. I blog occasionally at jordanmartin.net. All right, and Phil, you can find me at network underscore Phil on Twitter, and networkphil.com is the blog. All right. And um, I'm Yvonne. You can find me on the blog at esharp.net and on the Twitter, uh, at the Twitter, Twitter, what, oh. the article, whatever, <laughs> uh, at Sharp Network. And so we're uh, really uh, grateful for Nick um, and Russ joining us today. And we will be back again in a couple of weeks. We've got Cisco Live coming up in a few weeks. So we'll have some special recordings from there, too. So thanks, everybody.